0: These things run very quickly, and suddenly these things become life logging on the greatest uh, on the greatest scale conceivable. Suddenly, it's you know uh, how many calories you eat a day, how many you know miles or kilometers you walk per day, um, how uh, uh, how many books you read per per month, how many movies you see per month, how much music you listen. To, you know, and and suddenly all of life becomes you know data. I think the two greatest changes um, in my lifetime. Uh, that that I've been around in my lifetime uh, have really been um, that everything has become political and that uh, everything has become data. And I think it was the shift to data um, from, let's say, the shift to numeracy from literacy that has allowed the politicization of so much because it's reduced arguments to um, numbers.
1: Who are the mountain Jews of Azerbaijan and are they a dying community? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with American novelist, essayist and journalist Joshua Cohen, whose latest collection of non-fiction, Attention, has just been published by Fitzgerald Auditions, where Joshua writes, From the six or so years I lived and worked as a journalist throughout Eastern Europe, I was used to this stripe of weariness. No one who grew up in an authoritarian regime likes to, or honestly can, answer a question directly. Everyone hesitates, dissembles, feels each other out. Feels out, that is, the type and degree of trouble that truthfulness, if they're capable of truthfulness, might get them into. In most post-Soviet countries, this Cold War ice can usually be broken, or at a minimum thawed, by a bribe, or through the vigorous application of alcohol. But here in this Muslim country, whose signature intoxicant was tea, alcohol wasn't an option. In another essay, Joshua goes on to write, It's as if Trump, this vanity candidate, famous beyond law, is offering all of us a wager. That he can inflame his rhetoric and press his luck without ever pressing it too far. Without alienating all women and black and Hispanic voters. And without getting too many Mexicans or too many Muslims or even just some white Democrats beaten up or killed. This, of course, is the only type of wager that Trump can ever make. A bet against America, counting on our dumbness, counting on our hate. So is America in crisis? And if not, what's going on?
0: Hello, my name is Joshua Cohen and I'm a novelist and an essayist. Uh, I've written a number of novels. Moving Kings, Book of Numbers, Bits, and so on. And I've uh, just published Attention, uh, Dispatches from a Land of Distraction, which is a collection of uh, my last uh, 15 years, really, of nonfiction, which includes some uh, reportage, um, some essays, uh, some diary entries, some total nonsense and uh and a long essay on um on attention on what attention is and uh and what it isn't and uh i think i was just going to read from a uh the first essay which is called uh, distraction and uh let's see how it goes if anything distinguishes my generation of american writers it's that everyone in my generation became a writer simply through the act of going online More words have been written, more words have been read by my generation than by any other generation in human history. I have to say, as a person who'd always planned on becoming a novelist, as a person who'd always planned on supporting the writing of novels, the writing of nonfiction, I found this daunting. The amount of information and the speed of its dissemination overwhelmed. I'm guessing this was the experience of most Americans born within reach of a mid-sized, untangled extension cord from the year 1980 most Americans who'd grown up with books only to exchange them for millennial adulthood and screens. This ever-increasing amount of information coming at us at this ever-increasing speed rendered us unable to adequately attend to our own divided presences, let alone to a world that, though it wasn't united, was suddenly global. Terrorism in Istanbul, hostages in Afghanistan, shark attacks, lethal mold, a sex scandal involving a missing congressional intern, the Giants versus the Broncos, to mention just a few of the headlines of September 10th, 2001. We were utterly incapable of absorbing what was happening. Rather, we were only capable of reacting to it. We scrolled through the plenitude and clicked like and clicked dislike and generally ignored anything we weren't able to assimilate efficiently. The dangers of our impatience were obvious, no depth, but considerably less obvious were the dangers involved with a mass culture's rupture into myriad subcultures. Today, our sense of selfhood is undergoing a similar fragmentation. We're all becoming too disparate, too dissociated, searching for porn one moment, searching for genocide the next, leaving behind stray data that cohere only in the memotech of our surveillance.
1: Really well done on the book, uh, Joshua. I have to say it's a very expansive read, very challenging in parts, um, fascinating in other parts. But you really cover quite an expanse. So I think there's something there for everybody. Um, You open the collection on a rather curious note. You have um, a quote from the great American psychologist William James, who wrote, Everyone knows what attention is. And it got me thinking that, you know, we are living in very distracted times. We're living in kind of moment-to-moment times, sometimes, and we're not really thinking. So I'm just wondering, do you agree with um, um, William James on that point?
0: Oh, that everyone knows what attention is? Sure, sure. But, but, but I think one of his points is everyone knows what attention is, but, is, uh, but they're unable to express it. And I think it's really the, um, that disconnect between the knowledge of what attention is and someone's ability to express it in words um, that comprises attention, so I think William James was really intending that as a trap um, you know that was one reason why why it was one one intention of the um, of the quote was to sort of show you that there was no um, that there wasn't this necessarily clear a uh, connection between the knowledge of something and uh, and the ability to express it to another person. do
1: you think we could look at that in another way and possibly say that it's not just an attention that we're possibly lacking in the world today, but um a heavy dose of
0: uh, introspection maybe I mean you know a lot of a lot of this book is about um is about word superstitions, you know attention, focus, concentration, introspection, proprioception, you know all, all of these words that we have for these very abstract properties. And a lot of the point is, is that you know, we develop this vocabulary because we don't really know what to call our thinking. We don't really know what to call our ideas ourselves. And so um, you know, a, a lot of this book is an attempt to f- figure out uh, sort of where these individual words come from, you know, introspection certainly being one of them, and, uh, uh, and to kind of not just draw out their etymologies, but, but also draw out a lot of thinking around their use. Um, and, so, and so the ability to think about oneself to oneself uh, has, uh, there's a large, you know, there's a large body of literature about that. And, and there's a, uh, and there's certainly in this, in this book, there's, you know, there are sections that kind of read through that. But if we lost the ability to kind of think about ourselves, to, to ourselves, possibly, I mean, if, if, if your definition of introspection um, forecloses the possibility of communication to others, then yes, I mean, you know, uh, uh, nowadays, it's very difficult, I think. For people to be introspective without then immediately having the urge to broadcast it to others, you know, broadcast their "quote unquote" findings.
1: And what about critical thinking then, Joshua? How do you think we're doing on all of that?
0: Critical thinking. I mean, again, I think that that's uh, you know, yet again, these are, this is a phrase that, that 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 sort of has its own history, that uh, that has its own coloration. So I'm not really, you know, I I, I really try not to use. These phrases and these and 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 these words uh like like introspection like critical thinking like um like critical inquiry uh uh because I feel like they uh uh i try not to use them without kind of acknowledging that that, that they come from a certain const- that each come from a certain constellation of um of ideas and values about what it means to think um if you're generally asking is it um is it tough to have a thought today uh the answer i think is yes. <laughs>
1: In one of the um, opening um, essays, I think it's entitled The Last Summer, you published it, um, I think it was somewhere around in 2016, you're looking at what's happening in Atlantic City. And it's a city that I haven't visited. So can you just, first of all, for anyone who hasn't visited the city, describe it for me, please?
0: Well, I mean, it's very difficult to describe uh, the city that you grew up in. <laughs> uh, so it, 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 it's, it's very, um, where I was born it's where I grew up. It's uh, a town. Uh, a city on an island, uh, the northernmost city on an island that has four cities on it um, off the coast of New Jersey. So kind of kind of hanging out in the in the ocean, and in the Atlantic. And it is a uh, it was founded as a, a sort of Victorian era uh, health resort, let's say, uh, and a vacation sort of this you know beach vacation destination. Uh, and it became America's sort of most popular um, middle-class beach resort, uh, where, because it's located almost equidistantly from Philadelphia and New York City, it, you know, enormous number of, 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 of people could access it on the train. And it, it, it became really, um, you know, America's sort of seaside, uh, vacation spot. Uh. Really, with the expansion of the interstate system, uh, road system, and, and then of course with the, the, the airfare, uh, sort of like cheap air, the age of cheap airfare, uh, along with a lot of other problems, really bankrupted the city. Uh, uh, really drove it drove it in decline, and uh, and there was an attempt at reviving it through the opening of casinos, casino gambling, and uh, and it's really sort of that's when Donald Trump came to town, uh, opening a number of casinos there and uh uh further milking the state the county and the city of of, of its generosity and of their generosity and then and then and then leaving having uh having really failed uh lost a lot of money in those casinos but also um sort of managed to like destroy the town in the process and uh and so yeah that, that's that's a land city. <laughs>
1: You present a somewhat grim picture. You write, Here, unlike on the boardwalk, everything is real. Here, everything is both ghostly and real. Vacant houses, apartments boarded up to protect against squatters, eviction and foreclosure papers flap from the doors like tongues, notice to seize, notice to quit, papers keeping the sun out of the windows. How big a problem is unemployment currently in the city?
0: Well, I mean, I I mean, First of all, it has the highest rate of foreclosures of any um, of any city in the United States. So, you know that that little bit you read was about you know really about the the, the fact that so much of this real estate is empty because of foreclosures. What's the unemployment rate? I mean, it, it has, I believe, the the, the second worst maybe uh, unemployment rate of any city in the United States. Um, I mean, it's a it's it's a failed city.
1: Yet, through the years and through its history, there have been these—I um, suppose you describe—boom and bust cycles, and within that, massive amounts of money thrown into developing the latest fancy casino or the latest fancy hotel. It must be quite a kind of a surreal place, is it?
0: Yeah, I mean, look—on on one hand, you have um, you have these kind of gaudy casinos that, for a while, you know, in the period of its of its of its you know of its boom, you know. Would yes would change all the time and and would have these uh uh you know would rebrand it like in the in in the spirit of ancient Rome or in the spirit of you know of 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 some you know banana republic in south america and you would have all these kind of architectures that, that 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 reflected those um those themes but then on the other side you you just you had the ocean which never changes. And uh, and so it's it's alternately, you know, very calm, and uh, and and very maddening.
1: To what extent, though, Joshua, has the city been left behind? Like you describe all the big investors, and you do mention Donald Trump in it, who um, invested uh, widely in the city. But I'm just wondering, for you know, when you compare other cities, to what extent has it been somewhat forgotten? Maybe now.
0: I mean, Atlantic City is. And was and is an outlier, not just because it is an island, uh, uh, but because it was really the the proving ground, let's say, or the testing ground for all forms of vice that later um, sort of disseminated to the rest of the, the rest of the country, um, and sometimes disseminated to the rest of the country in legal form. I mean, Atlantic City was 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 very much uh, uh, the home during Prohibition of 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 Liquor running for a lot of the northeast because of its 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 uh, position as an island. Um, it was always a gambling. It was always a gambling mecca, and uh, before gambling was legalized. But gradually, with the sort of legalization and again the dissemination of all of its vice to the mainland, uh, you know suddenly what you had to travel to a resort to enjoy could be enjoyed. Uh, in your, you know, next door to you, right near your home. What I mean by that is that casinos started becoming legalized uh, in Pennsylvania, in, um, in in New York State, in uh, Connecticut, and um, Delaware. And casinos, which were previous, which were previously only um, have been legal at least in the Northeast, in 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 Atlantic City for at least a decade, um, suddenly were, uh, yeah, were available only a few miles drive from where the customer base was. And that, uh, so why, why, if you could gamble around the block, why would you, uh, you know, take a one hour, you know, bus rider or, uh, or train to, to Atlantic City uh, uh, just to do the same thing? You know, it got left behind because its vice was widely spread.
1: And then when you look at today, um, gambling culture, it's, you know, most people are gambling online. It's so easy.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is true. That is true.
1: Can we talk about your uh, letter to Stephen Shore? He's a very well-respected um, American photographer. I suppose you describe him maybe as a street photographer or an urban photographer, would you?
0: Uh, I don't know because you know, I you know, I, I tend to think of you know street photographer, urban as people taking pictures really of cities, yeah. and he he he's sort of the great uh, laureate of 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 you know suburban sprawl. Of sort of the interstitial spaces between the city and the countryside, the you know the, the 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 odd freeway interchanges, the on ramps, the off ramps, uh, the sort of the sort of poetry of the American highway. Uh, that that that's what my association with.
1: You wrote a public letter to him. Can you tell me about that, and I might get you to read from uh, the letter if that's okay.
0: Oh yeah. Um. I thought that he. Uh, I wanted to say something to him that you know at. Uh, 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 on the occasion of his birthday, and I think that you know he was a person he was a person who really you know one of the earliest um, photographers to kind of look at these ugly uh, or these, these these parts of 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 America which were supposed to be deeply ugly, um, these parts that were supposed to be um, almost forgettable forgotten you know the, the the, the kind of concrete Molly spaces that grow up alongside major, major freeways and whatnot, you know, the rest stop, the, the transient spaces. And um, and he was the first really, at least to me, to, to uh, the first that I saw, it, to, to kind of say, no, slow down. Um, these places that we're supposed to only pass through uh, and that we're supposed to find so repellent are actually beautiful and we should stay and look a while. And it was that quality of, of attention, Paid to, um, paid to spaces that were otherwise entirely dismissed, or dismissed entirely by other people. Um, that was interesting to me.
1: So um, Joshua, I might get you to read from that um, that 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 open letter if you wouldn't mind.
0: Your work uh, takes the detritus of our American surroundings, our power lines and telephone poles and advertising signage and the shadows they all cast and returns it through neutral observation to its fundamental existence, its geometry, lines and angles, planes and solids. You look at a curb, a bag, a bed, a plate, and cutlery, and in time, they become what they've always been or what they always might have been if anyone had looked before, a horizon, a vanishing point, a frame. The result for the viewer, or for this viewer, is paradoxical. Instead of being estranged from my environment, I'm brought closer. Instead of being defamiliarized, I'm empowered. This, then, is the lesson I owe you for, Stephen, that the mass chaos I perceive all around me is merely a choice of my perception and that it doesn't have to be a burden but a challenge as to whether I myself am able to derive from it its inherent usable form, its inherently humanizing, logical, even beautiful form, which is only to be found through engagement, not reaction. I thank you for that, Stephen. Have a happy, happy 70th birthday.
1: It's very consoling to think how within um, his creative tricks and when he gets the uh, viewer uh, to do that, um, he can pull you into thinking differently or to pull you into a stillness of sorts, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, that is the power, the, kind of the irresistible tug to stillness, yeah.
1: I'm not sure if you um, meant uh, your article, Data Sexual, to be funny, but um, um, you, um, you know, as I was progressing through it, um, I laughed so much because um, how you're kind of totting everything up and you kind of find yourself thinking in those types of patterns. Can you tell me about it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was sort of a, an attempt to, to revisit the literary criticism, this idea of of, of sort of life-logging or... Um, or what some people at that time were calling, you know, data sexuality, which is to say, you know, someone who uh, um, wrote down, I think this is how it began, someone, you know, writing down, you know, the number of of times they've had a sexual encounter in in a month. And then, of course, you know, the Internet spreads these things around very quickly, and suddenly these things become life-logging on the greatest uh, greatest scale conceivable. Suddenly it's, you know, uh, how many calories you eat a day, how many you know, miles or kilometers you walk per day. Um, how uh, 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 you know how many books you read per per month? How many movies you see per month? How much music you listen? You know, and, and suddenly all of life becomes you know data. I think the two greatest changes um, in my lifetime uh, that that I've been around in my lifetime uh, have really been um, that everything has become political. And that uh, everything has become data. And I think it was the shift to data um, from, let's say, the shift to numeracy from literacy that has allowed the politicization of so much, and because it, it's reduced arguments to, um, to numbers. And so, Data Sexual was my attempt to read a number of books that were about the you know, phenomenon of the internet but not to kind of report on them or review them in the traditional literary sense, but merely just to kind of count up. So I wanted to render their contents you know, in, in data uh, really in order to kind of uh, to add up their effects and show how vacuous they are.
1: That must have been a very interesting um, personal and social and cultural experiment, if you will, to take, you know, life and everything around you in it and um, to look at it or add it up from that perspective. It must have been very cramping or, or what was it like?
0: I mean, I, I think it's I think it's, it's It's. I don't remember what writing it was like, but I do know the feeling of, 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 of that sort of enumeration and it, it 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 troubles me, Um, the idea that life can be, you know, sort of reduced or or understood to, um, you know, by numbers, and that that demography uh, can replace argument. Uh, You know, this to me is um, sort of the crisis of numeracy. When people come at you, especially, you know, politicians, and are saying, you know, X percent of people believe this, or Y percent of people have done this, or Z percent of things have happened. You know, and 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 this this sort of reductivism to number um, has, in many ways, replaced argument, and is responsible, I think, largely for, um, or or has conditioned a type of data-based thinking which I think only reinforces partisanship.
1: As you said, it's very troubling and very, very worrying. But if you kind of take it to, you know, uh, take a longer view on that, and if we're, you know, shrinking things down, as you say, the kind of reductivist uh, approach, that, you know, how that pervades thinking of all sorts, and then you take it to 10 or 20 years or to 50 years, um, it is very concerning, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean I I I I'm I'm not going to prognosticate, but I do think that uh that a culture that that is so taken with um that is so kind of deeply rooted in uh in numeracy in 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 the enumeration of 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 its ideals um really loses the um the rhetoric that inspires it. Uh, uh, that 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 inspires you know that that inspires their country that inspires their governance i mean i do know that that uh here in america most of our political life has been taken up with arguing over fake data points uh and not um sort of rhetorically drilling down into um some of the you know expressions of our values that uh uh, uh that our politicians have have, have been showing
1: do you not think though it's uh, has reached a turning point? All the theatrics, and um, it's you know that things have shifted in a different direction. Possibly.
0: I mean, I think every time uh, I reach a turning, I think I think every day we've reached a turning point, and then the day after that is another turning point until we've turned back around three hundred and sixty degrees. Books with Susan Cawle. This is News Talk,
1: and you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with American novelist, essayist, and journalist Joshua Cohen, whose latest collection of writing, Attention, has just been published by Fitzgerald Editions, where Joshua writes. One thing about dictatorships: they're either very expensive or very cheap to fly to. There is no such thing as a mid-range regime. Extremities charge extremities. I asked Joshua about his trip to Azerbaijan and his fascinating travel article on its community of mountain Jews.
0: I've been to uh, uh, I've been to Central Asia a number of times, but I was uh, uh, for this. Um but this piece, I was in Baku, I believe, three years ago in 2015.
1: It's such an atmospheric piece of writing, Joshua, and uh, it's thrilling in parts to read. For anyone who doesn't uh, know much about the mountain Jews, can you tell me a bit about them um, and the whole culture around the area?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 you know, first of all, Azerbaijan is a is a dictatorship. Um, it is. Uh, uh, located um in central asia and it is on um it is on the Caspian sea and baku is its capital and uh there are a a uh, it's been involved in its own sort of um independence movement uh uh with a breakaway republic of nagorno-karabakh um and uh it shares borders with um with with russia the southern part where you have all of the uh, uh, breakaway republics um, you know Dagestan Chechnya Ingushetia you know North Ossetia and Kabardino-Balkaria Karachay-Cherkassia and all of these kind of partially recognized breakaway states South Ossetia um, Abkhazia Ajara and so it, it it's a post of shifting borders and shifting allegiances and um, right set in the caucasus mountains and uh and that's where the mountain Jews uh, uh traditionally have lived this where their or their villages are um, and uh across the borders not just in azerbaijan but in also dagestan and 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 so on and they are a um they are a people who uh their origins are, are are sort of mysterious. There are a number of, of, of different origin stories. The one I kind of kind of believe the most is that they're, 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 they're Iranian, uh, they're Persian Jews that that, that that sort of wandered north um, in the um, 18th century. Um, but uh, but there are legends regarding their origins going all the way back to um, to the time of the Bible, and uh, uh, where they're declared sort of the you know one of the lost tribes. And, uh, but what is a fact is that they um, seem to comprise the, the oldest or the longest-running mafia in, uh, in recorded history because uh, living in the Caucasus, um, up in the mountains, they controlled the mountain passes for the past few hundred years. And sort of anything that would have to cross the Caucasus Mountains, meaning essentially crossing from you know Europe to Asia, uh, would pass through these mountains and uh, and they would take their toll. Um, this, of course, so, so it might be easy to think about them as sort of the uh, the, uh, uh, the customs uh, inspectors along the Silk Road.
1: It leads it's like it's a very um, tight-knit community. Everybody knows everyone. So I was just wondering... There was a sense in how you wrote it that you felt very much that you were watched as you were travelling through these communities. I know that you went in to uh, meet some of the leaders, community leaders, some of the big businessmen or kind of mafia-style uh, leaders through ranging different um, contacts and that you had a kind of a, I suppose, um, best described as a fixer of sorts, yeah?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I was not very welcome. And uh, to say the least, and um, and it was difficult to figure out how to approach uh, how to approach specifically the, the mountain Jews who lived in Guba, which is uh, 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 or lived in an island, um, uh, essentially on uh, uh, the river on the other side of the river in Guba, uh, which is a, a town in, in Azerbaijan, a mountain town, and um, I. Yeah, I did end up finding a fixer who is in um who is in the piece who wound up um kind of being revealed to me as a um a sort as a mountain Jew who was sort of a a former member of of their um you know mafia which I I, I hesitate to call a mafia but it's easy easy shorthand but you know of their extended family business and and uh who turned out to actually have fallen afoul of the, uh, of 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 the authorities, let's say, and was on the outs. And so, while he was kind of trying to sh- his best to show me around, uh, uh, I was wondering why, um, and introducing me around, I was wondering why he was being treated so coldly. In addition to you know, myself, and then uh, eventually, during a long conversation, um, the story comes out. And, um and it's it's a story of of sort of a post-communist you know it begins as kind of a post-communist success story but 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 what's you know slowly ends in a a you know sort of failed mafia state depression and yeah he became a, an interesting character that after the conclusion of the peace, I um and I you know after I left Azerbaijan uh I was kind of unable to get in touch with him afterwards
1: while you were over there and you were, you know, setting up your network and researching different people to talk to and then kind of sketching out the terrain, I'm just wondering, did you find yourself asking yourself, what the hell am I doing here? I know you're from a Jewish background, so it must have been interesting on a personal level um, uh, to uh, see um, the rich and broad ranging Jewish tradition and a global community. But you must have been quite paranoid at other stages because you are, without doubt, an outsider um, when they don't get many outsiders coming in.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's what a journalist does, is put themselves in a comfortable situation.
1: And did you Uh, learn from that?
0: Oh, sure. Sure, I mean, I I, I think I wanted to kind of get a picture of what, you know, um, I think I wanted to get a picture of what this certain um, black market looked like uh, in the Central Asian Republic. And, 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 and I was particularly interested in, in Azerbaijan and in the mountain Jews because Azerbaijan was the country that uh, uh, that has sent, I believe, more than any other Central Asian Republic. It had sent more uh, uh, fighters, and more fighters from Azerbaijan had, had had gone to fight for ISIS. So you're talking about, a, you know, a, a a beyond a majority Muslim country. You're talking like a 90, I think it's ninety six, ninety seven percent, you know, majority Muslim country with the rest, you know, really being Christian, and then just this small sect of mountain Jews, and when you think of, that, when you kind of realize how um, radicalized so much of the Azerbaijani underclass has been to go, um, to go fight um, with the Islamic State uh, uh, in, in, in Syria and in, in Iraq, um, you know, uh, the mountain Jews' survival becomes interesting. I mean, you suddenly start seeing the value, let's say, of a, um, of a mafia safe. It's a,
1: it's an interesting question to ask yourself in terms of social structures, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, I think that we see this parallel with Trump, you know. Do we live here uh, in America under, you know, a government of laws or a government of men? And Trump would have it be a government of men, meaning that, you know, it is about a sort of the stronger the strong rulers' decisions. And, and choices and not necessarily the interpretation of um, immutable laws. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, mafia states are um, are sort of um, nations of men, let's say, run amok.
1: Tell me, you mentioned two very interesting guys who were um, mountain Jews that um, migrated um, over to Russia uh, when everything opened up and uh, yeah. they have a lot of money. And it seems that there have been so many uh, very entrepreneurial and successful mountain Jews, um, and it's interesting to see how much this community has, um, you know, how much development in other countries this community has had, isn't it?
0: Yeah, a lot, uh, yeah, and a lot in the UK, really. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that, uh, uh, um, like many Russians or people in the Russian sphere. Uh, uh doing people doing business in russia you know they they find it most expedient and safest to take their um the money they make in that market elsewhere you know uh uh you know they they make the money there and uh uh and invest in in in, in foreign property i think that uh, uh, uh yeah i think there is certainly a a a you know a a great tradition of 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 trade of mercantilism and success. Among the the mountain Jews, but I also think that they were um, uh, that the hustle that they learned was historically forced on them. I mean, they were exiled to the mountains, to the Caucasus, and uh, uh, by the Khanate uh, in the you know again in the 18th century, and and um, they had no other real way up in the mountains where you have no land to till. You know, where you're, you're up in the mountains, you're away from you know the sea, which is where so much of Azerbaijan used to make their you know, money that's where they you got the oil and that's where you got the fish uh that they had sort of no choice but to um but to become these 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 um you know these these enterprising uh commercial criminals
1: so kind of um an inherited resilience though not legally going possibly in the right direction is that it
0: yeah, yeah, very much so.
1: Tell me, Joshua, you have a very interesting um, article on uh, translators um, and it uh, was made for very amusing reading, but you write in it, um, translators are much like writers. They tend to be sedentary and yet have tumultuous romantic relationships, but they differ from writers in one crucial respect. They never believe the books they're working on to be perfect or to have been perfect. I thought that was very interesting and I'm just wondering, you know, in terms of, I suppose, a writerly outlook, is perfectionism. Is that, is that what it's all about?
0: No, no. I mean, I think that a lot of that essay is about, um, is about Plato and about Neoplatonism, but really about the idea that, you know, there are perfect forms in this world, that there's a sort of platonic form of, of your book, which is sort of floating in, the, uh, uh, floating in the ether, but really, you know, floating mentally above you. And in conception, it seems perfect. In conception, it feels perfect, just like all of the platonic forms are you know, are perfect conceptions. And yet when they become translated into the actual physical book, when you take this thing that had been entirely imaginary or aspirational or ideal and begin actually writing it down and choosing the words in which it's expressed, it no longer becomes an image of a book but a book itself, um, you realize that, that, that perfection is unattainable.
1: That's a very interesting way to put it, but it, it's to from when anyone has a burst of life in them to put a book out there, or like yourself, this wonderful collection of essays. You know, somewhere at the back of your mind, you, you know, you're it's 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 art. So there is that striving towards something unbelievable. Whether it works out or not is another matter. But there has to be somewhere in there that kind of um, hope, is there?
0: Oh, sure. I mean, I think it's the you know the Kafka line, you know, there's hope just not for us. Um, uh, A lot of that essay is really also about translation and about how writing is, um, you know, writing originally, you know, for yourself, it's a form of translation because, you know, it's it's taking sort of, you know, an idea you have and finding the best words in the best order with which to express it. Um, But it, it turns out that the more you revise, um, you're writing, you kind of revise the original idea, whereas with translation, you're always struggling to find the words in the other language for for for, for the original thought. But but you have an original, and um, and it's interesting that the original, you know, the discipline that has an original to reflect upon, um, respects it, and the discipline that does not have uh, 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 an original to rely upon, except in the in the most abstract way, um, you know, ends up um losing track um or, or, or losing sight of um of original intentions. And I kind of wanted to speak about, you know, the slippage of intentions through writing and the way in which writing, unlike data, unlike numbers, you know, um, it, it causes these mental slips where um where nearly by the process of speaking something out, of talking something out, um, you can kind of drift farther and farther from um, from a point and um, and arrive at an opinion that you'd previously um, not expected.
1: You must read a lot of theology and philosophy, do you, Joshua?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I have.
1: And I'm just wondering, how do you think that shaped your voice as a writer? Because, you know, are the questions that philosophy asks itself and of its practitioners? Because, you know, whether you look at the, you know, the history of philosophy or the history of religion and all the key players in that, um, it does set off curious uh, questions in your head which must impact on how you go about uh, writing fiction and
0: non-fiction. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there is a. Um, I mean, look, I was certainly raised in 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 a religious tradition, Jewish tradition, and and, and raised, you know, reading those um, those books, you know, Tanakh, you know, the Torah, the Ketuvim, Talmud, um, you know, and then like, you know later in life, I mean, that was from when I was very small. And later in life, of course, I, I I I I read a lot of the early Church Fathers, and. Uh, and really, you know, Augustine is the is the is the the writer who um, who I deal with, I think, most extensively in, um, in in this book, at least in the attention essay, uh, and, and his concept of attention being the natural prayer of the soul. Uh, uh, that to me is is is, uh, is an important concept.
1: So you're responding to that? Is that it? Yes,
0: yes I am. I am. Yeah. I mean, I feel that that uh, uh, is attention just the the the, the soul's kind of um, spontaneous grasp toward the divine, or is it actually a um, controlled and directed um, attempt to um, to contemplate the here and now? Um, that that to me does animate um, you know that dichotomy does animate a lot of the book.
1: And as you're springing between the fiction and the non-fiction, obviously in attention, we get, um, you know, a range of travel writing, we get diary entries, we get some very kind of uh, pressing journalism in it too. But we also get some kind of reflective, um, moral philosophy stuff and, um, and some very interesting, um, history, uh, sprinkled uh, within. So I'm just wondering, as you're springing between all of that and then you're, um, sketching up some fiction as well, um, how do they relate to each other or are they in relationship?
0: So the nonfiction for me is much more, um, you know, related to my, uh, uh, to the way I earn a living. I mean, truthfully, I'm, I'm a member of the last generation of people who um, really could write novels with their right hands and journalism with their left um, and be able to support themselves uh, from the journalism. Uh, that really faded with the Internet, where you were not able to earn enough of a living as a journalist. Or have enough time, frankly. From what it would take you to earn a living as a journalist in the United States, uh, you know, under the internet, to 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 kind of support the writing of novels. So I, I I very much made it in under the wire as, as as sort of the last of a of a 20th century breed.
1: And presumably, with that um, comes a responsibility, does it, Joshua?
0: Uh, I feel yeah, I feel that's true. I also feel it it's certainly responsibility to remind people how it used to be. Yeah. You know?
1: So tell me, Joshua, what is the hope with attention? Because it, you know it's such a uh, ranging um, and eclectic mix of different types of articles, reportage, and so on. Um, I'm just wondering what 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 is the
0: hope? Um, I, I think the hope is that is that people begin thinking more about the uh, 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 about what is in front of them and about what they choose to engage with. I think that. Uh, if there is a way in which people can become empowered uh, or inspired to become more discerning with regard to um, what they see and what occupies their sensorium, that to me would be um, that to me would be a victory. I mean, I, I think too many people feel that they are victims of um of this excess and victims of this. Um, superabundance of information and I think if there was a um, if there was an attempt to moderate or control just to be made to feel that you are in control as opposed to the sort of passive recipient um, but you become like the the active sort of editor or curator of this um, of this vast world of, of, of information um, I, I think that that would go a long way to um, making a culture at least that I want to live in.
1: And that was American novelist, essayist and journalist Joshua Cohen. Attention is published by Fitzgerald Editions and retails for just under 16 euros in paperback. Now, I have to say hats off to Joshua. This is one terrific piece of writing. It's expansive, original and hugely direct. I absolutely loved it. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say thank you for listening and a big shout-out to the lovely Jojo on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to close tonight's broadcast with the captivating words of Joshua Cohen from a diary entry entitled Meditations from the Gym from his stunning collection of non-fiction. Attention, where Joshua writes, Without pain, there is no gain. But with pain, there is no gain either. There is never any gain. Pain, therefore, is meaningless. Interesting take indeed. Good night.